0: Our scripture reading today is from 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, which is located in our church Bibles on page 1022. Please stand, if you are able, as we read from the New Testament. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him, beloved, We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Please be seated.
1: Let's pray as we come to our Advent sermon this morning. Father, we thank you so for the reason behind Christmas. Even though the modern Christmas has long since apparently forgotten The true joy that's given to us in it we as the church can rejoice in you so thank you father for the days of advent the days of expectation of waiting lord of anticipating your return and of rejoicing in your goodness to us in jesus christ you have the words of eternal life lord would you feed them with us with those words this morning we pray Amen. To introduce our sermon series on Advent, I want to read to you from a book, from a recollection of a Christmas past. This is by Dylan Thomas, writing about his boyhood and his Christmases in the early 20th century. It was on the afternoon of the day of Christmas Eve and I was in Mrs. Prothero's garden waiting for cats with her son Jim. It was snowing. It was always snowing at Christmas, December in my memory as white as Lapland, though there were no reindeers, but there were cats, patient, cold and callous, our hands wrapped in socks, we waited to snowball the cats. Sleek and long as jaguars and horrible whiskered spitting and snarling, they would slink and slide over the white back garden walls, and the lynx-eyed hunters, Jim and I, fur-capped and moccasin trappers from Hudson Bay, off the Mumbles Road, would hurl our deadly snowballs at the green of their eyes. The wise cats never appeared. We were so still, Eskimo-footed, Arctic marksmen in the muffling silence of the eternal snow, eternal ever since Wednesday, that we never heard Mrs. Prothero's first cry from her igloo at the bottom of the garden, or if we heard it at all, it was to us like the far-off challenge of our enemy and prey, the neighbor's polar cat." Obviously, a boy's fond recollection of Christmas, not so fond for the cats of the neighborhood. But as I say, that was the poet Dylan Thomas, writing in 1937 of his memory of a child's Christmas in Wales. When you think of Christmas, I wonder, do you look backwards like Dylan Thomas to the past? Is that where its glory is for you? You know, often we'll say Christmas is for the children, and I think sometimes when we say that, Rather mournfully, we're saying, well, it isn't for me as a grown-up anymore. The joy has gone. Or would you say that you're caught up in the the weariness and busyness of this life for which December the 25th is at least a welcome day off? But this world looks forward, doesn't it, to, to the kind of materialistic, frankly fraudulent version of Christmas when real joy is offered to us that we often... Oversee. And the, the danger, surely, of our Christmas these days, it will be more amazon must than Christmas with Jesus. Or are you, as I think John is telling us we should be, looking for Christmas soon to come, that bettered Christmas day of Christ's return to us forever? Well, whichever way you're looking is determined, I think, by what version of Christmas You have allied yourself with what good news if you will that you're counting on so advent is our theme this morning And Teresa has read to us these first ten verses of chapter 3 of John's first letter I'm going to be referencing uh, all ten of them, but I'm going to be focusing on these first five verses if that's not too confusing Let me give you a word of introduction to John. It's been some time since we looked at his letter The context for John's writing is that he's likely, at this point, uh, the bishop of Ephesus. The church is probably about 100,000 people, still largely located around uh, Asia Minor. And the great threat to the church, which John addresses in this letter, is false teaching. And you'll catch that as you look at some of these verses. So you'll find the passage on the worship guide and on page 1022 in the church Bible. And this is the question before the house. How does Christmas help us focus our lives on the return of Christ? Three answers here. First of all, because it is a day to look forward to. It's a day to look forward to. Verse 1. John is speaking here plainly, not about our Christmas day contemporaneously, but the Lord's return, that day when Jesus will come again and history will suddenly stop. You know, if Jesus returns at 5 p.m., there will not be a 6 o'clock news. Everything will have stopped. And the way that John is advising us here is to steer the boat of our lives towards that event with anticipation of the coming of Christ in view, very much in the way that you would steer a boat. If you know anything about boating, and I don't, but I hear that if you steer a boat, you don't steer, obviously, from where you've come from, nor where you're at but rather towards where you're going, where you're looking at. Set your course there, John's saying. Live your life in the hope of that day. Don't fear it. Look forward to it. Why? Well, this is the reason that John gives us here. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so, he says, we are. Why is the Second Coming, that Christmas soon to come, a day for you to look forward to? Well, the answer is surely because of the person who's coming. Isn't it striking that John's answers to our fears here is not to give us a timeline of the second coming, of all the events that we might want to know that will lead up to it and what exactly will happen that day. Rather, he gives us a description of who it is that's coming, of God's character. Look at him, John says. Look at him. See See what kind of love the Father has. Remember my first, and it has to be said, I, my only experience which, of repelling, which, as you know, is the, the controlled descent, apparently, of a vertical incline by moving with the, with down the incline by a rope, otherwise known as sheer insanity, if you've ever done it. If you, if you have done it, you will know that as you're walking backwards for the first time towards the edge of the precipice, Uh, fastened to safety and life, really, only by a rope tied to your instructor. He's saying, look at me, look at me, don't look down, don't look down, look at me. So John here, I think, is saying, see, look. Don't look at yourself. That's not where the confidence of the Christian faith lies. That's not where the change comes from the Christian life. If you do that, you're likely to stumble. No, rather, look at Christ. In him, you will find the grounds for your hope. In the character of God, you find grounds for your hope. So you look at God. Remember what John the Baptist said the first time he saw Jesus Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See what kind of love he has, John is saying. The pronouns are so telling here. John is pivoting on these pronouns. Look at this, the us and the we here. He's saying this is how we know, right? We know what kind of love that it is that God has for us. It's the kind of love that freely gives to us, to people like us, his former enemies, after all, his rescue, his forgiveness, his family at the cost of his son. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, even us that we, even we, should be called the children of God. And so we are. Let me just cut away for a moment on a brief detour. I promise I will uh, bring us back on track in a moment. We've chosen as our Advent theme lines from Christmas carols under the general heading, The Wonders of His Love, along with Bible passages from the first letter of John. The first carol, today's carol, which we took to be the title of this first sermon is the one we began worship with, What Child Is This? And you remember, I don't know if it's a favorite of yours or not, but recalling that first Christmas where the three kings bring, their wise men bring their gifts before Jesus, arriving at his home in his infancy. These are the words, Bring him incense, gold and myrrh, Come peasant king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings, let loving hearts enthrone him. I don't know if you know much about the history of this carol. There's a bit of a mystery surrounding it, not the words. Those were written in the, uh, in the 19th century. But the tune is something of a mystery. The tune is what we call today "Green Sleeves." The story goes, and there's likely not an ounce of truth to it, but bear with me because it's a fun story, uh, is that the tune was composed by King Henry VIII in his courting days of the Lady Anne Boleyn, not to mention that he was already married. But Henry met Anne Boleyn in uh, 1526, and from the moment he saw her, he was apparently captivated by her, obsessed with her. As his biographer, Alison Weir, says of him in his obsession about getting a son, because if you want to understand the Tudor kings, you need to understand that, they were obsessed with the continuity of their dynasty at any cost. And Alison Weir says that Henry became a cartoon of himself, the original man painted over by this bloated, self-willed monster who changed wives and chopped off heads with gleeful alacrity. And Berlin's head included. So much for royal romance. That's the kind of all-in-charge king that the world fears about God. That's the human experience of potentates. The monster who will do anything and use anyone and wipe anyone out who stands in the way of getting what he wants. Certainly, if anyone will cross such a king, he will revenge himself upon them. That's what the world knows of absolute kings and monarchs, tyrants all. And so isn't that why John writes to our fears in the next verse, the reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. The world has made its assumptions about the creator. It fears him, but it has no idea what he's like. The world has no idea what his love is like. The world has no idea of the motive with which the king of kings has approached us and given us his own son to rescue us. If you look in John 3:17, you can see there the motive of God towards even the world. And because the world doesn't understand him, it does not understand we who follow him. But John tells us he's not writing for the world's sake. He's writing for yours. And he's saying to them, and he's saying to you in your families as you you struggle and pray to present the gospel to those who are closest to you, to your friends who still don't get it and they somehow put up with you, but they still don't get it. Don't be surprised, John is saying, that they don't get you. It's because you are God's children that even those closest to you will presently reject your words and oppose you and even fear you as the world grows darker. That is the time we're in, as we see that, don't we? But here's the question for us. What do you think the Father is like? Why do you think he calls you as his child? What do you think he wants from you? You see, I think this is part of the reason why we don't truly get excited about Christmas. It's not simply familiarity. It's that we haven't allowed the gospel to go from head to heart. And so we forget it, or we've never processed it. And so what gets to our heart first is our own fears about God. And so you know how it goes, as I do. You sin, as we are wont to do. And the first thought in your head immediately after is, see, you'll never be a real Christian. You just wait. God's going to get you back for this. See, when he finds out what you're really like, there's going to be a reckoning on that day. Now, I want to suggest to you, if you have the wrong thinking in mind that hasn't yet reached your heart, you will read these verses wrong, and you will apply to yourself words that are actually meant for the world and not for you. But see, John says, what kind of love the Father has given us. Martin Luther, I think this is one of the best things he ever said, said, He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. If we truly believe that Christ is our Saviour, then we have a God of love, and to see God in faith is to look upon his friendly heart. So I want to encourage you, because we all struggle with this, if you're thinking of God as being unpredictably vindictive, that in your experience of life you have come in some way to find him distant and perhaps even fearful, a kind of Henry VIII in the background who's looking, disapproving at you, looking, expecting you to mess up next. Well, if you're thinking that, you're not only very mistaken, you're also missing the joy and the peace that's waiting daily for you to be reassured with in the gospel. Someone has said, as you gain an awareness of God's grace towards you, it will change your whole attitude to the way that God deals with you. So. When that happens, right, when you've sinned, when you feel convicted about it and you're tempted to be discouraged, to stop, to give up, whatever it is, you can at that moment honestly engage into a conversation with God, the very person you've hurt, and you can say at that moment, because you know he loves you, thank you for showing me, Lord, thank you for telling me how kind you are to keep coaching me. Because that is his Father's heart towards you. Sin is not preeminent for him with you, but rather a Father's heart towards you. And because the Holy Spirit is like a sailing instructor pointing to your faults not to crush you, but so you can learn faster and better how not to capsize so frequently next time, that's what he'll do with you. He'll bring these things to mind that you might learn and learn of his love. So it will be on that final day, not a day to fear, but a day to look forward to. Second, it will be a day worth getting ready for, verses 2 to 3. This is what John says as we read it here. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Beloved, beloved, much-loved, dearly loved, John calls them. And his point here is not simply that he has personal affection for them, although certainly he knew the people to whom he was writing. That's good, isn't it? It's good to know that your pastors think well of you, I suppose, or your elders. But how much better to know that you are beloved by the judge of all the earth, how much better to know that the God who sees what you see do in secret loves you and has mercy on you and sees you as his own child made right with him in Jesus Christ. And you won't have to wait for that, John says. John wants us to know that we are God's children now. You don't have to wait to the last coming to know that and to experience that. His affection, his grace... His changed relationship with you. It's at work, John says, right now. And again, if you think about it, that will change how you respond to him, how you will want to serve him, how you will want to please him. Not now as a, a servant or even as a staff member, but rather as a member of his family, his son, his daughter. One of my uh, favorite scenes, if you know me, I love the movie The Count of Monte Cristo. Not the old one with, uh, with um, that guy here, I can't remember right now. But uh, uh, the recent one, made in the 1990s, The Count of Monte Cristo. And there's a scene where Edmond Dantes, the hero of the story, has just escaped from the Chateau d'If, and he's made his way, uh, quite unexpectedly and miraculously, to the shore of a nearby island. He comes across there a a group of pirates who uh, insist that he has a knife fight with one of their fellows, who's fallen into bad favor with them. And he wins the fight, and they say, well, you can do what you want with this other one. And he asks for clemency. He pleads for clemency for this other pirate, Jacopo. He saves his life. And Jacopo grabs him because he's understood what he's done for him, and he tells him, Satara, I am your man forever. I think our response to God is meant to work a little bit like that. That understanding what God has done for us, that even as we process our sin, as we have this morning, we know we deal with a God of mercy, a God who is smiling at us, a God who loves us and has forgiven us in Jesus Christ, knowing that we are beloved children, should change how we respond to him. I've always found this helpful in answering the impossible questions. Why am I suffering? Why did God allow this to happen to me? I thought God loved me. Why would he take this person or this part of my life or this opportunity from me? We don't know the answer to those questions, but we do know this. It's helpful to know that you are beloved. Because really, it's the only definite assurance that you and I have about the way that our lives will go, about the future, right? That's the only thing we know is that the God who is in charge of all things loves us and treasures us and calls us his own. Do you remember the first day you ever went to school? I know it's a way back for some of us. If you can remember that far back, you might remember the fear you had as a small child on that day. I remember it intensely. All I wanted to do was to stay with my mother. When school was offered to me and friends, she said, "And oh, you'll have such a great time, why are you being silly? Maybe you weren't like me, maybe it was the neurosis of an introverted British child. (laughs) But clinging to her, she was the only safe still point in a strange and unpredictable world. I think there are some things we shouldn't grow up up from, not only our love for our mums, but also understanding that when it comes to this life, We need a certain and sure place to cling to. And it's the belovedness of God towards us that is that place. And in a similar way, John is saying that's the only guarantee that we're given for this life. You aren't guaranteed a long life. You aren't guaranteed satisfying work. You aren't guaranteed a spouse or an easy marriage. You aren't guaranteed children or presently believing children. You aren't guaranteed freedom from doubt or from sickness or freedom to do as you please or freedom from obligation to others. Now, this is the one guarantee we get as Christians. We are loved. That's why the last promise in Matthew's Gospel is surely among the most precious. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, I am with you. I am with you. Always. Always. To the very end. That's the only thing we know for sure about our life. God loves you. In all of your circumstances, he loves you. And that's a vital vantage point because John points out we don't know the details of what's going to happen less. Look at this. What we will be, he says, has not yet appeared. And there's probably, although there's been volumes written about this by seminary professors, uh, there's no way of knowing what's going to happen on that day. There's no way of knowing the process of, of uh, transfiguration and transformation that we will go through. There's no use speculating what we will be like, how the change will come upon us. We just don't know. But again, we do know this. John, in verse 2c, says this. When he appears, we shall be like him. How will it happen? The only clue we have, actually, is from 2 Corinthians 3. I say we have no idea, but we have this vague sliver of an idea. It's a suspicion, really. Paul speaks of God transfiguring us, like Moses, right, in Exodus, into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Whatever that means, that's what the transformation will be like. But this is all we know for sure. When he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So, question... If you can't know the future in detail, why is John bothering to tell us these things? Well, the answer, notice, is in what he says next, verse three, everyone who thus hopes in him, in other words, hopes based on this, will purify himself as he, Jesus, is pure. In other words, the awareness of God's grace and the hope of seeing Jesus face to face and the knowledge that you will be finally changed because you belong to him and are beloved by him is the motivation to act differently in this life is the motivation to trust, is the motivation to obey, is the motivation to participate in the very ways that God is changing you, and you are confirming that change when you do so because something of His great heart is being shown towards you. You know. You are beloved in Jesus. So, like a mom or like a a dad with a child takes them aside and says, it's okay, it's okay. You made a mistake. You even did something pretty naughty. But that doesn't change our love for you and our commitment to see you change, right? Martin Luther said, we are simul justus et peccator, which if your Latin is like mine, you need translating which means simultaneously justified with God and sinning. We are strange amphibians. Someone else put it this way, I am not what I ought to be, I am not what I want to be, I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So you see, little by little, You and I are being changed, and we are being called to participate in that change every time we either sin or every time we obey, either by confessing, hearing the conviction, thanking God, or by trusting a little better and by obeying him, knowing he is our hope. Tim Keller used to tell this story of the church father, Augustine, who, if you know anything about Augustine, had a, shall we say, former life and quite an interest in hanging out with the ladies. Supposedly, after his conversion, he turned up at one of the cities and the areas of the city which he used to frequent, and he was approached in a crowd by uh, one of the ladies he used to know. And she called out, "'Augustin, it's me!' "'Yes,' he said, "'but it's not me.'" In other words, if you are a Christian, there has been a profound change of ownership. You are no longer what you used to be in ways that you are just beginning to understand. So much so that when you and I sin, strange as it may seem, it is in one way no longer like you to do that. It's no longer like you in the family characteristic to act in that way. That's part of the way that we feel remorse over sin. And we want to repent over sin because it's unnatural to us now in an odd way, although we have been naturally doing it in our amphibious confusion. So sure, it is your responsibility when you mess up, I don't want to say it's not, but because of the new family you belong to, because God has got a hold on you and is working in you, you can see there's an old you and a new you, and it's the new you you are. So Jesus said in John 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him." You can't love God unless he's first loved you. You can't purify yourself unless you've been first purified, made right with God. And as you do correspondingly, little by little, what God asks of you to do in participating in your own sanctification, in your obedience of what God tells you to do in the Bible, you will. By each act of that, and even in the messing up of it and confessing it, strengthen your own family likeness. So John's telling us you can prepare with joy for that day when you will meet him face to face. And finally, lastly, a day when the Savior of sinners will be revealed, briefly here in verses 4 to 5. John says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him, in Jesus, there is no sin. Sasha Sutsarov, who preached here a couple of weeks ago, you may remember the uh, president of the Moscow Evangelical Christian Seminary. uh, We went out for lunch afterwards, (coughs) and he told me that he's regularly visited at the seminary by officers of the FSB, which is basically the KGB with new uniforms. And when they come, they're coming mainly to check on his books to find out where he's receiving money. But he sits them down in a circle after that's done and they're satisfied. And uh, with these very dangerous men, he has them sit around in a circle. He gives them each a Bible and he says, Open this book to page 1766, and would one of you read what it says? And one of them, perhaps the leader, will read from Romans 13:1. Everyone must submit themselves to the governing authorities. And Sasha says, they like that. (laughs) They come, they read that, they like that, and then they go. So pray for Sasha and Natasha in their ministry. But this is why Jesus appeared, John says. This was his mission. Not simply to save individual people, but to destroy, he says, verse 8, the works of the devil. To undo what Eden wrought in chapter three of Genesis, to bring an end to lawlessness and to rebellion and to reestablish submission to the ruling authority. Only Jesus could do that. No one else could ever begin to do that. It would take God to mend God's creation. You know, part of the way that human beings express our lawlessness is our antagonism to the message of the good news at Christmas. That's the reaction of the world. We don't need a savior. We can find our own salvation and make it on our own. Thank you very much, religious person. I've been amazed at the number of uh, children's books, at least 25 because I'm keeping count, which have something like the title, The Somebody Who Saved Christmas. So, uh, there's the boy who saved Christmas, the naughty boy who saved Christmas, there's the girl who saved Christmas, the spider who saved Christmas, the unicorns who saved Christmas, the alpaca who saved Christmas, Oliver the cat who saved Christmas, Norman the slug who saved Christmas, and another one, only you can save Christmas. To which I suppose the answer is, you couldn't all save Christmas. (laughs) But isn't that the hubris of the human heart in its fallen condition? It rejects the idea that people should be saved. We don't need saving, born right the first time but this is the message of christmas not that you can save christmas but that christmas and only christmas by christ must save you so in closing this is the message that christ is the only person who can save human beings from the direction they're going to headlong pursuing john three sixteen and 17 we are going without him to a place without him a place of unimaginable loneliness forever. And Jesus says there in John 3, it was that plight of the human race that God loves that made him send his own son and gave up his own son as the way out of that. So if you are his this Christmas, you are told to come to him, to embrace him, to rejoice in him, And if you are not his yet this christmas the message is the same he loves you it is he himself not all of these others who are drawing you listen to him respond to him so church these verses that frighten us verse six and others you have to understand john's style who he's talking about is the world These are not meant to be a threat to you, but rather a promise to you in the face of your failure. Yes, you will sin. You will to your dying day. But your trajectory has changed. You will not make a practice of sinning. John is not talking about you. You sin, yes. These words, practice of sinning, refer to the world and to those who are passing themselves off as Christians. So, verse 9, how... Well, it's because God has made this change in you that you can delight yourself in his mercy and that you can submit to the governing authority. So this is the life, isn't it, given to the children of God, that we would rejoice in something that is sure, not something unsure, that we would know that we are beloved, not that we come to a God who should be feared. And we come, don't we, repenting knowing that he is working within us little by little, wanting to go on in the same direction, though we often fall getting up at the urging of the Holy Spirit and going again to his mercy to serve him. The day that's coming is a day to look forward to. The day that's coming is a day to prepare for, and the day that's coming is a day when what is hidden will be revealed by our Saviour. In Christ's name, amen.